You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical and empowering conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. After almost two months away, I am thrilled to welcome you back to the Digital Void podcast. Beginning this week, we are resuming a weekly release schedule. We'll be focused on a few key subject areas as we move forward. Artificial intelligence, the fast-evolving media and streaming industry, trends, and, of course, memes. We have a lot happening at Digital Void, including our upcoming Memes, Myths, and Magic event on Wednesday, June 21st at Caveat in New York City. The event will feature journalists Shannon Lau, Allegra Frank, Ryan Broderick, meme creator Ina Da, media theorist and author of Survival of the Richest, Douglas Rushkoff, and today's podcast feature, Mitch Horowitz. While we don't have Mitch joining us live, we have a rather special treat. Mitch's talk from Digital Void's Meme in the Moment Festival from October 2022. For those unfamiliar with Mitch, he is one of the most important voices in esoterica today. He's a writer in residence at the New York Public Library and the Penn Award-winning author of books including Occult America, One Simple Idea, The Miracle Club, Daydream Believer, on certain places, and the forthcoming modern occultism. In this talk, Mitch asks what it means to be a rebel in a digital age and provides us with three strategies to move forward. You can join Mitch, as well as an amazing speaker lineup, on Wednesday, June 21st at Caveat in New York City. As a special bonus, 30 live attendees of Memes, Myths, and Magic will be gifted a copy of Mitch's most recent book, on certain places, and get it signed by Mitch immediately following the show. Here's this week's episode, a talk about how to be a rebel in a digital age by Mitch Horowitz. Thank you. I'm so glad they changed the slide because I have no idea how any of this works. I sit in a room by myself most of the day, smoking weed and going clickety-clack. So... It's just me, no multimedia presentation. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I really enjoyed all the presentations. Uh, I, I thought every one of them just brimmed with life. I specifically want to call out Makina's because hers helped me start doing math in my head. As she predicted the apocalypse in 2040, I thought to myself, well, I'm turning 57 next month, so in all likelihood, I'll be dead. I live on... <laughs> weed, nicotine, and sugar-free beef jerky and have no health insurance. So good luck, everybody. Um, I do have two sons, and I, I do care very deeply about the issues. But, um, and good luck to them. Um, but it's really hard to say what is facing us in the future because every generation feels that it exists on a precipice. I mean, literally throughout history, you've had millennialist movements going back over a thousand years, and you had millennialist movements very popular in this country in the 1800s, the 1840s, and you can only imagine what it must have been like growing up during the World War I generation where the war killed a, 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 a single-digit percentage of the world's population, as did the ensuing flu 
that followed. And I don't in any way mean to minimize any of the issues we face. I care very deeply about climate change. I care very deeply about the simmering situation in Ukraine, the civil war in Syria, in Yemen. And these are gravely, gravely serious issues. But I am reminded of a quote that's often misattributed to Napoleon Bonaparte. It was actually said by the Prussian Field Marshal von Moltke the Elder. Any fans of von Moltke the Elder here? Yeah? Harry Potter guy? Yes? Yeah. Um, all plans immediately fail upon contact with the enemy. So w we simply don't know what's going to happen. Um, I I'm not hopeful about the future in any respect. I'm agnostic about the future. Uh, years ago, a philosopher who was a very big influence on me, Jacob Needleman, was interviewed by a New Age magazine. This was just after the events of 9-11. And the interviewer asked him, are you hopeful about the future? And Jerry, I thought very ingenuously and sincerely said, no, I see no reason to be hopeful about the future. And I appreciated that remark because interviewers tend to always know what kind of response they're fishing for. And I think it's very important that we speak frankly, about these things, including the absolute uncertainty that we live under. Um, I am reputed to be a Satanist, which is because I am, in fact, a Satanist. <laughs> and I, I write about this in my book, Uncertain Places, which, by the way, is not only available, but is made available free by the organizers. How's that for a cover price? I thought that was really quite delightful. Um, and I've often asked myself, what it means to venerate what I consider a not quite metaphorical force of rebellion in the world today. I thought I knew the answer to that when I was 17 years old. I'm turning 57 next month, as it happens. And I actually attended the Who's first farewell tour when I was 17. <laughs> and. I've seen the original lineup of The Clash, Black Flag, and The Dead Kennedys, and they were really good, actually. And I, I had a pretty good idea of what it meant to be a rebel at that age. Uh, I knew I was tired of listening to The Beatles, and I didn't like Ronald Reagan, and I wanted to shave my head, and I, I, I understood what it meant to reject the given roles that were being handed down to us at that particular time. But everything is upended today. And I've wondered, what does rebellion really mean in a world where Elon Musk and Donald Trump and others are constantly insulting people and engaging in sarcasm and conspiracy theories and so on and so forth? And I want to offer you not a prescription, but a suggestion for three things, and if these three things happen to turn you on, I would say act on them, and <laughs> act on them decisively, and burn the fleet behind you, because none of us have much control over policy, and events tend to spiral of their own accord, and it's very difficult to figure out what we as a human community ought to be doing. There are good policy ideas, and there are countervailing emotional reactions against those policy ideas, which can make it feel very much like a neutered effort whenever we try to affect policy. But there are things I personally believe that we can try, just as experiments 
in our own lives. So I want to offer you three things. And if you dig them, try them for one hour. See what occurs. The first thing is, in your personal life, if you're interested in trying something rebellious and helpful and that'll make you feel good, get away from cruel people and be absolutely decisive about it in your most intimate life. We don't talk enough as a society about the problem of intimate human cruelty. People who are close friends of yours, who direct insults at you, who fire little stealth missiles across the brunch table at you, and you're so taken aback that you can't even think of a rejoinder until five minutes after you've been insulted or debased, and it happens all the time. And the reason you can't think of a rejoinder is not because you're mentally slow or because you need some sort of a book that tells you how to deal with assholes, but the reason is that emotions move more quickly than thought. Emotions are more powerful than thought. Emotions are faster than thought. It's not anybody's fault. It's just the way that we are built. If you identify relationships in your life that are dominated by cruelty, and I don't care who is at the source of it. I don't care if it's an in-law. I don't care if it's a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, best friend. Get away from that person. We don't have time to be in proximity to cruel people. And it is an absolutely unaddressed problem in our life, the analysis of which gets taken away from us all the time because we're told solutions have to come from within, try this cognitive exercise, try to do this, do that, do the other thing. But the last thing that's ever arrived at is absolutely severing your ties and burning the fleet behind you. And see if you don't feel happier. The other thing is, we're coming up on the holiday season, and I don't mean Halloween per se. I mean Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, where we all get together with our immediate families, among whom we all feel so understood and appreciated <laughs> and insulted and debased and humiliated. And my message to you is, and this is apropos of the previous one, if you're in a situation, and I, I raise this because it's no secret that suicides spike during holiday season, not only because people feel lonely, but it, in fact, I think it's wonderful to be nobly alone. I think loneliness has a terrible rap. I think it's much better to be nobly alone than to be in debased company. You don't have to go to anything. You don't have to attend anything. And, and I can tell you from personal experience that the consequences will not be as bad as you think. You know? And it's much better than sitting at brunch complaining about how one of your in-laws was so cruel and so horrible to you. People behave in negative ways towards us because they have plausible deniability, because they can always say, you're too sensitive, you're being defensive, it's a joke. It's not a joke. You're not too sensitive and you're not being defensive. You are being a human being who is meant to be feeling, who is meant to live a fortifying, decent existence around people who honor your selfhood. There is absolutely nothing wrong with refusing 
to go to Thanksgiving or to go to Christmas or to go to whatever holiday you celebrate if those things are sources of pain to you. Why would you persist in it? For image, to make things look good? Because, well, you know, I want my children to have a relationship with my mother-in-law who, you know, curses me and humiliates me every time I see her. If you have children, there are lots of constructive adults in their lives. Seek out those relationships. You don't have to accept these off-the-shelf relationships that are handed to you just because you want to maintain appearances. And if you do elect to go to these holidays and Uncle Mike starts spouting off about conspiracy theories or what's wrong with CRT or who really won the election, you owe him silence. You owe him nothing but silence and an absolute dead stare. One, <laughs> one of the ways that bullies entrap us is that they make us emotional and they make us think that we have to participate in life on their terms. You don't have to participate in life on anybody's terms. Now again, there may be consequences to what I'm describing. There may be economic consequences. You may feel, well, gee, you know, I, I don't dig being around certain groups of people, but I've got a financial tie to them. I've got a geographical tie to them. My boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse will get angry at me or what have you. There are going to be consequences to anything you do in life, including just sitting in your home watching cartoons all day. There are consequences to everything. And they're very, very frequently nowhere near as bad as we think they're going to be. And the third and final point I want to make to you is this. When I was a kid and <clears throat> bands like the Dead Kennedys and the Buzzcocks and all the early punk bands were coming up, there was this wonderful excitement that somebody was finally speaking truth to power. And that was true at that time. But dig this, with the advent of social media, we as a human community have gotten into this groove where sarcasm, rhetorical questions, humiliating other people, insults, laughing at other people's pratfalls has become the lingua franca of our day. And there's a place for all those things. There's a place for all those things. They dilute the pressures of life. They help us deal with the unknown. They help bring levity to situations over which we have no control. But I don't think that sarcasm, online cruelty, online insults, humiliating other people was ever really meant to be the common human language that everybody participated in 24 seven. There's this expression that you've all heard, Twitter is not real life. And I've never dug that expression because of course Twitter is real life. We spend more time on Twitter and other social media platforms than we do among people we love. You need only check the stats on your phone to see that that's true. So Twitter is as real as it gets. And I believe that we as a human community are simply not going to make it if individuals, individuals, don't get out in front of this joy, this perverse joy that fuels Twitter that's been hugely monetized to billions of dollars around the world and that dominates so many of our waking hours. If we don't personally elect to desist from this, 
And it's not just about doing something nice for your neighbor. It's about doing something for yourself. My contention is that we are not at liberty from shame when we insult, kick, or participate in the humiliation of another person. In fact, we do feel that shame, and we sublimate it by going right back to the bottle, taking another drink. It's a kind of addiction. And so we continue this spiral, we continue this spiral, and it affects how we feel about ourselves. I rarely meet anyone who doesn't feel that he or she suffers from a poor self-image. And we don't know what to do about this poor self-image. So we go to our shrinks, we bother our friends, we read our self-help literature, some of which is good, and we're always looking to this antecedent as to why we have a poor self-image. But the one antecedent that we never look to is our own faces in the mirror. We never consider the perverse glee we derive, even as we consider ourselves progressive and sensitive people, from seeing another person humiliated. And it's easy to say, well, you know, that's a bad person. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a 4chan person. That's a QAnon person. And I dig that. I, I dig that, having been, you know, the proud victim of a, a thread on 4chan myself. And they love Satanists there. Um, and... <laughs> And, and I don't care, you know, I don't care. I don't, I don't participate in that stuff. Because if, if we're gonna have a working definition of what it means to be a rebel, it has to be for something. It can't just be this repetitive echo of what's been fed to us by culture or what the clash called turning rebellion into money. This is now generations old at this point. And we're going to have to find our own vehicles and our own ways. And I submit to you that if you feel like you don't possess a sense of comfort in your own skin, if you feel like you don't possess a sense of selfhood, start by considering whether we all, whatever our past, and we've all suffered, we've all suffered. It's just part of the human situation but start by considering whether we self-perpetuate that by participating in this feverish 24-7 manner in humiliation of other people over social media. There's this tendency to want to look for adversity everywhere but that which stems from within ourselves. I'm not saying you don't get to be funny or occasionally snarky or use sarcasm. All of that stuff is good stuff, but when it becomes this constant unremitting diet, we sublimate this shame in ourselves by going back to it over and over again, and the ultimate victim is ourselves, because it keeps us from feeling comfortable and self-possessed within our own skin. So I do wish for everybody in this room a sense of creative rebellion, a sense of pushing back against the given, a sense of taking the reins of existence. And it's as close and as intimate, I suggest to you, as the breath that you're drawing right now. So that is my Halloween wish for all of you, and it's great to be here, and thank you all.
Thank you for tuning into the Digital Void podcast. For more information about Mitch, Digital Void, memes, myths, and magic, and all else, please check the show notes. We'll be back next week as Jamie and I take a deep dive into AI hype cycles.